Dear fellow redeemed, fellow travelers, we consider briefly our reading from Exodus chapter 40, um, the account of the setting up of the tabernacle. And for an image of what we're talking about, that's the picture you see on your bulletin tonight. And one of the things that would be very helpful for understanding, one of the things that would be very helpful for understanding both how God does things as well as why he does things, is understanding the way that Old Testament history and New Testament fulfillment relate to each other. For example, there's um, very common, you can think of Old Testament prophecy finding its fulfillment in Jesus. That's fairly simple, and we, we're very familiar with those. You think of the passages, particularly from Isaiah, um, such as um, about the virgin being with child, or the government will be on his shoulders. Maybe you think of the passage, but you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah. And we get that. We understand that when God uses words to describe something, he's pointing ahead to a specific person, place, time, or event. But there's another layer, that the way God set up Old Testament worship life was prefiguring and, in a sense, foreshadowing what would happen in Jesus' life. And even beyond that, would provide a template and an understanding for our Christian lives today. You think of um, the central book of the five books of Moses, We've got Genesis is history, Exodus is the history of the Exodus, and then Leviticus. Leviticus is basically detailing their entire worship life. And there's two things that you got to see when you read Leviticus, and I guess here's the, the timeout cautionary note. If it's your New Year's resolution to, um, to read the Bible cover to cover, don't read cover to cover, because you'll get to Leviticus and you'll give up. Because there in Leviticus, God details all of their worship rites and all of the, the ways that people are made to be clean or unclean and all of the sacrifices that they would have to do. And there would be two lessons that God is teaching in the book of Leviticus. First of all, that there's no way that people can make themselves clean for God, clean enough for God, and no way that they can keep themselves clean enough for God. But then secondly, that God would provide a substitute and that the blood of this perfect substitute would wash away their sin. And that's woven throughout all of their um, Old Testament worship life. You think of the basic way that a sacrifice would happen um, if your family was going up to the tabernacle there in Jerusalem or later on the temple. Your family would perhaps pick a, a lamb or a goat from your own flock or purchase one once you got to Jerusalem, and then you would take it to the temple, and the family would gather around, and you would place your hand on this animal's head, oldest to youngest, all of everybody at once. And um, in some cases, there would be a recitation, a confession of sins. And sometimes it was just the symbolically place your hand on this animal's head, and then the priest would come along and sacrifice the animal would kill the animal and catch the blood. And then the blood might be used to, to sprinkle the people or to sprinkle the, the altar. Yeah, it's 
kind of smelly and very visceral, I think is a good word for it. And that lesson would be taught in a very regular, everyday sort of a thing. That I can't keep myself clean enough for God. And yet the blood of the perfect substitute makes me clean. So we've got prophecy, which is a direct, direct statement about what is going to be coming. And then we've got their worship life, which symbolically, time and again, repeats a lot of that same message. But there's a third way in which God foreshadows what would be happening in the life of Jesus. And that's, and that's the way that God had set up their everyday life. That all of this Old Testament history of God's people telling the, the story of God's plan of salvation until they get to the person of Jesus. And one of the ways in which God tells this story is by providing a picture, providing a picture in their own history of what Jesus would do and what Jesus would be like. And the setting up of the tabernacle is one. The setting up of the tabernacle as the children of Israel are wandering there in the desert they're wandering in the desert, and God says, all right, it's time. And he gave Moses the exact dimensions and plans for what this tabernacle was supposed to look like and how many different layers go on top of this tent. And this tabernacle would be set right there in the middle of the Israelite camp. And all the Israelites camped around it in their own personal tents. And you see, you see um, right here in verse, uh, where is it? Take verse 9 and following. Take the anointing oil and anoint the tent and everything that is in it. You shall make it and all its furniture holy, and it will be holy. And what God is doing there is this anointing oil demonstrates that this, this tent and all of its furnishings are set aside for a sacred purpose because God is going to be dwelling in the midst of his people. And that's the message of the tabernacle that God is dwelling there in the midst of his people, in the middle of his people. And so he has to prepare a place. He has to prepare a place that is holy enough for him to live there, to make his presence known there. And then he has to prepare the people. That's the next paragraph, verse 12 and following. Bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance of the tent of meeting. And these Aaron and his sons would have this ceremonial washing um, and then they would be clothed in, in their priestly garments so that they would be holy in God's eyes, that they would be ceremonially clean enough to work there at the tabernacle, to, to talk about God and to act in service to the Lord there at that place. And then on top of it, not only does he have a place, not only does he have the people, but then he has this presence, which we hear... Um, which we hear on the next page, actually. Verse 34. That after all of this is set up, and everything in the entire tabernacle campus has been anointed with oil, and the priests who had previously been anointed are now washed and cleaned in these or clothed in these clean garments, and the Ark of the Covenant is inside that tent, in the innermost room of that tent. We've got the place, we've got the people, and then we've got the presence. That God makes himself seen visibly. In a way, incarnate, although not in flesh. 
But there in that, that tremendous cloud that covers the tent, by day and by night, God makes himself known. God makes it known that he is with his people in the desert, that he is with his people in their suffering, that he is the one providing for his people and protecting his people, that in a sense, in a sense, here among the people of Israel, the Garden of Eden has been restored in a limited way. That in the Garden of Eden, you might, you might remember that God would walk with Adam and Eve in the garden in the cool of the day. And now, through the sacrifice of these animals, which foreshadowed the sacrifice of Jesus, now we've got God dwelling in the middle of his people again in a very vivid and real, tangible way where the Israelites can wake up in the morning and they can, if they woke up a little bit late, they can see the, the smoke rising from the morning prayers and the evening prayers and they can smell the ongoing scent of charred animals, <laughs> both as a burnt offering as well as a fellowship offering, which is their Old Testament word for a barbecue or a potluck. Because when God establishes fellowship with his people, when God lives in the middle of his people, one of the things that God does to show how close his connection is with you and with me is he makes himself known in tangible ways. And part of that was the cloud above the tabernacle. And part of that was that one of their, one of their sacrifices where they would basically just, just grill the, uh, the lamb or the goat and... Um, and then they would sit down to eat it together. And all of that, all of that history foreshadowing to the person and work of Jesus Christ, that God would dwell in the middle of his people, that to these people who are wandering in the desert, perhaps they feel like they're stuck in the desert, they're waiting to get to the promised land, and God is there with them. And to all that, we have our first reading for our first verse from John chapter 1. The word became flesh and tented among us. Normally translated, you know, he dwelt among us, um, he made his dwelling among us. But the word there is like to set up a tent. The word became flesh and he tented among us. Exactly as God had lived in a tent, so to speak, in the middle of his tenting people. This Jesus Christ took on flesh and lived among his sojourning people. The people who are maybe, you know, not in the exodus, but were still in the wilderness of having to deal with sin and death and pain. We're still in the place where we have to fight against the temptation of the devil and his accusations, where we still have to deal with and fight against the temptations of our sinful flesh and where we are separated from our Lord. That even though, even though you and I are completely united with him in faith and in love, at the same time we don't see him, at least not tangibly, the same way that the disciples did when he tented among them. And so all this Old Testament history, dating back to, you know, basically restoring the Garden of Eden, where God dwells among his people again, all that history of the tabernacle even, culminating in that one true Israelite, Jesus Christ, 
And when John says that he, may, he became flesh and tented among us, he's not talking about just this temporary status. Because when Jesus became human, he still has his human flesh today. He's still just as much a man today as he was 2,000 years ago. But the tent is a temporary foreshadowing of the greater glory. Just as that tent would be eventually replaced 500 years later by the temple, and the temple itself replaced by heaven, and not needing a temple, because the Lamb himself will be their temple. Consider what God says toward the end of the book of Revelation on that topic. Because all of, this, all of this Old Testament history culminating in the person and work of Jesus Christ where he offers himself, he, the, the best example of the prophet and a priest and a king, all of those things that he does in order to purify a people for his very own, that the blood of this one, the perfect Lamb of God, would wash away sins once and for all. Exactly as, as John the Baptist would later say a little bit later in John chapter 1. Look the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Everything pointing ahead to Jesus so that you and I, who now live in this New Testament church, this New Testament era, all of those things are now seen in God's church. I guess going left to right, it looks, looks kind of like a triangle. And then another triangle. All of the things that God wanted to demonstrate, that he demonstrates in picture here in the Old Testament, is fulfilled in, in reality here in the New Testament. That God dwells in the middle of his people again. That his people, who still have to deal with a world of sin and death and pain, his people who still have to deal with the accusations of the devil and, in a sense, are, are distant from the one we love, that his people is the place where he chooses to live and to dwell. I mean, personally, that's one of the reasons why I just love this, this layout of this church, because right here at the center, we've got God's people gathered around. And here again, we have seen in a very tangible way that God is in the midst of his people, that God continues to bless his people, that exactly as the tabernacle had foreshadowed, and we have the fulfillment even in the Lord's Supper, that this is our Emmanuel, our God with us, that he is here with a place, not just a, a location here like when we have the Lord's Supper, but even in your heart. That our Lord doesn't need a temple. He has your heart for his temple. And at the same time, each of us being built like stones into a spiritual house together. And as we gather around the Lord's, the Lord's table here, we're reminded that the Lord does dwell in the midst of his people still. He dwells among his people for a purpose. To be here with his grace and his forgiveness and his reassurance. So that you and I can say, you know what, my Lord is right here. I know that one day, one day eventually, he'll take me to be with him in heaven. But until then, he's just as present here among his people as he was there in the Old Testament. And they would see it visibly in a cloud. And we, 
we tangibly get to taste and touch through what we eat and drink. I guess um, even on top of that, you know, as we, as we talk about how all that Old Testament history pointed ahead and culminates in Jesus Christ, and then those same ideas and themes are carried out again among God's church, that, you know, apparently there's a name for pretty much everything in this room. <laughs> I don't know them all. I'm not that much of a liturgical nerd, although I know some pastors who are. Um, but the one that I am, that, what, that did kind of catch my eye, is that cloth that, that, covers, um, that covers the elements on Sunday morning. We, we put out the communion ware um, with the bread and the wine and the, the chalice and then put this white cloth over it. And it's not just like a cloth to keep everything, to keep everything hidden until the proper time. That particular cloth is actually referred to as the tabernacle. <laughs> I don't know who came up with the idea, but the symbolism of it is that, yes, God dwells among his people again in a very real way. And it's here in a temporary fashion, but it's here exactly the same with all of the blessings and benefits that God shared with his people when he dwelt there at the first tabernacle. And so all of these things together, that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of all this foreshadowing, both the, the prophecy, talking about the prophets and the priests and the kings, the offices, the tasks and duties that Jesus carried out perfectly. We talk about their, their worship life, where even their sacrifice is pointed ahead to the one true sacrifice. And we talk a little bit about their history, where even that, the history of that tabernacle in the middle of God's people was a foreshadowing of the one Emmanuel who had come to be with his people forever. So that today, as during the time of the Exodus, we see that God is with his people. And until the day he takes us to heaven or returns in glory, he'll continue to be with his people in a way that is approachable to you and to me. He'll continue to be with his people in a way that is tangible for you and for me. For the Israelites, it was the, the scent and the smell of forgiveness as they saw that animal. For the Israelites, it was the the pronouncement, the proclamation of forgiveness from the lips of the priest. For the Israelites, it was that cloud and fire by day and by night, the constant reminder that the Lord of the universe had chosen to dwell among his people. And for you and for me, it's the reality that when God made you a Christian there at the font, that he took up residence within your heart. For the Christian, for you and for me, it's the reminder that when the word of the Lord is shared among God's people, there he continues to build his spiritual house of spiritual stones. It's the reminder that when we gather together in Holy Communion, there our Lord is just as present. Our Emmanuel is there with his announcement of forgiveness and his proclamation that you have been made his own dear child. And I guess the last thing we'd have to talk about is, is the two ends. You know, I mentioned the Garden of Eden. <laughs> and that's the image that we have for, um, for heaven. That 
God not only talks about Jesus living during his ministry as him tempting among us, but later on the Apostle Peter would also refer to the time in the body as living in this tent. That one day, sooner or later, the tent we live in will be destroyed, but it will be restored. One day, sooner or later, body and soul will separate and you will go to be with your Lord And then eventually, Eden will be restored even more fully, where you'll be raised from the dead to live with God in perfect fellowship forever, to live with his people in perfect fellowship forever, with no more death or mourning or crying or pain. And all of that, bound up in this image of the tabernacle and in the fulfillment of Jesus Christ, that our Lord has chosen to dwell among his people. He chose to do so then with the place and the people and the presence. And he chooses to do so now at this place among his people and with his presence so that you can be perfectly certain that your Lord dwells with you too. Amen. Amen.